This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his newsmaking interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is new every Thursday, podcastone.com and iTunes. And welcome to the first podcast of 2019. Hope everybody had a healthy, happy, great New Year's celebration, great holidays across the board. And here we are now, right into it for a brand new year of Eddie Trunk Podcasts and uh, a whole lot more. All my other stuff still cooking and up and running already for a new year, including my daily radio show on Sirius XM 106 volume, where the interviews on the podcast you hear originate from. And, of course, that show is on Monday through Friday, live 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time on Channel 106 volume on Sirius XM. It's called Trunk Nation. It's nothing but rock talk and news. And it replays every night, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern and it's always on demand anytime you want it to on the SiriusXM app. As I always tell you, we take one or two interviews from a whole week of stuff that I do on that show and bring them to you a week or two after they originally air live and happen live on my volume show here on the podcast. I know there's a lot of people that probably got SiriusXM as a gift for the holiday, so maybe you're a new subscriber. If you are, please join me every day to talk rock on Volume Channel 106 for Trunk Nation. Uh, we have a great interview for you coming up in a minute. I, like I said, holidays now behind us. New Year is here. And I'm going to be diving full on into what uh, probably will shape up to be as busy of a 2019 as a 2018. 2018 for me was easily the busiest year and certainly the year I traveled the most ever in my life, from touring Mexico with Deep Purple to the monthly broadcast from the Rainbow to a brand new TV show on Access TV that has me traveling all over the country, covering music festivals and even outside of the country a couple of times. It's been absolutely an incredible year, and I can't wait to see what uh, 2019 has in store. Now, right out of the gate, some stuff is going on, including the big NAM show, which is now coming up in a couple of weeks in Anaheim, California. For those not familiar with NAM or what it is, it is a huge expo of folks that sell and manufacture music equipment, drums, guitars, drumsticks, anything that makes music, even uh, recording studio equipment, cables, effects, anything that has to do with the creation of music is on display every year in January at NAM, People come from all over the world to look at the new gear. The vendors all have booths there. And a lot of artists who endorse the gear contractually have to show up to NAM because they have to be there for their endorsements. You know, a lot of them get free stuff and free equipment and 
Uh, once a year, they have to show up at NAM and meet with the vendors and maybe do a signing at the booth. The interesting thing about NAM, as anybody knows who has been there, is that it was originally put together. And by the way, NAM stands for National Association of Music Merchandisers. And it was originally a, a very a strict trade show. It is only an event for the retail music industry. But over the years, it has become somewhat of a fan fest. And you really need to be a vendor or a guest of a vendor to get on the expo floor. And I'm telling you, this thing is enormous. But it's become such a thing that fans just like, you know, they want to go to it. And it really is not a fan thing. And it's really not open to the public. But fans want to go to it, honestly, because a lot of musicians hang out at it and they look at it as a chance to do a meet and greet. And to that end, some of the vendors even have signings and meet and greets at their booths, which doesn't make a lot of sense when you consider it's supposed to be an industry show, but it's become this mix of a lot of different things. And it is enormous, enormous event. I've gone the last couple of years. I host a few things there and I'll be going again for uh, wearing a bunch of different hats. For years, I didn't go to NAM because it's just not something that I would go to unless I had a function. But the last few years, I've had opportunities to do things there, one of which is an award show called the Hall of Heavy Metal History, which is coming into its third year, and I will host once again. And that happens the Wednesday prior to NAM at what used to be the Wyndham and is now the Marriott, just up the street from the Expo Center in Anaheim. So I'll host that on Wednesday night. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'll do my volume show from there live with some guests and I'll also host the Ronnie Montrose remembered show, which is a Montrose tribute that happens that Friday night. And on top of all of that, I'm going to be shooting an episode of my access show trunk fest. So, and that was the catalyst to get me there. You know, I don't usually do stuff at NAM or go to NAM unless there is something that brings me there and then if there is, then I'll build some other things around it. So when Access came to me and said, hey, we'd like to do an episode of Trunk Fest for season two from NAM, great idea. And they said, we'll get you out there. We want to do this. Then I extended the trip and built some other things around it. So it's going to be a, a busy run of time with a lot of cool things going on. And I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be the first road trip for me of this new year coming up in, in um, geez, less than a couple of weeks, I guess. I mean, probably like a week and a half or so. I'll tell you more about it when we get closer. And then after that, we're starting to look at and get into the cruises that I host every year. Not necessarily host. I host one of them. The others I broadcast from. But I've been doing my volume show on board several great music cruises over the last couple of years, and that will happen again. There are three going out in February. The first one will be Cruise to the Edge, which is the progressive rock cruise that happens early February. That'll be followed by what was called the Moody Blues Cruise and now is called On the Blue Cruise. And that'll be followed by Monsters of Rock Cruise, which is the one that I also host. And I am, uh, you know, most in my wheelhouse in terms of the type of music I deal with. But I've enjoyed the other cruises in the past. They're a lot of fun. It's a a great exploration to learn about some other music and have some of those artists on my show on volume. It's awesome doing a live national radio show from a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. Uh, Also a really cool experience and a fun thing to do. So I'm definitely doing Cruise to the Edge. I'm definitely doing Monsters of Rock Cruise. I'm not really sure, and I won't be for another few days, whether I'm going to be able to do the on the blue cruise, AKA Moody blues cruise because of a potential scheduling conflict. But, um, at least two, maybe three cruises in February and also another cruise coming up in October. That would be the Megadeth cruise simply called the mega cruise. So there's a lot of stuff lined up already. I'm already getting hit up about some concerts and festivals. Rocklahoma will be here before you know it. There's just a ton of great stuff going on, and I'll keep you informed of all of it on my social media, Twitter, at Eddie Trunk, Instagram, 
at Eddie Trunk and the fan page on Facebook. And don't forget the official online home, which is, of course, eddietrunk.com. So that's what's going on as we are already into a new year. And as you can hear, a lot of cool things already in the works and more to come, I'm sure. That second season of Trunk Fest for Access TV will debut sometime in the summer as I'm actively shooting new episodes for that. And once the festivals start ramping up, that'll start happening even more. If you want to see Trunk Fest episodes from season one, Access is currently airing an episode a week at 7 p.m. Eastern time for Pacific on Wednesdays. So check your listings if you have Access TV, which comes up as AXS. And uh, again, the show is called Trunk Fest. They've been showing one episode, 7 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays. Why they are not showing them like crazy and spreading them around and doing them in blocks for the life of me, I will never know, but I don't run the network. <laughs> I'm just happy to be doing it, doing a second season. Maybe we'll be doing that or they'll be doing that more uh, when there's more episodes, I'm told, but trying to get the word out there and establish this thing and let people know it's there. I do hear from people who have seen it, but uh, new new season coming, and I, it's important to let people know the show is is happening and uh, exists and ramp up to season two. So thank you for those that do watch and looking forward to it. What, what really is much more of a travel show than anything, people checking out the season of Trunk Fest to come, and hopefully if you haven't seen episodes from season one, you'll be able to do that as well. All right, so... I have for you this week an interview that took place on my SiriusXM show a couple weeks ago with Getty Lee dropping by my studio. Needless to say, I've been a lifelong Rush fan. I've known the guys in Rush for many, many years. I've interviewed Getty and Alex countless times, both TV and radio, and even interviewed Neil Peart. And yes, that is how you say his last name properly once for vh1 classic i did an hour one-on-one interview with neil i don't know that would have been back around oh four maybe every once in a while it it pops up on uh youtube and sometimes somebody takes it down it pops back up again but it's been out there quite a bit and that was a pretty amazing moment because neil doesn't do much talking as we know so i caught wind that getty was going to be promoting a book on bass guitar that he recently released. And I had back and forth conversations for a while with the Rush Camp in Toronto. And finally, it was confirmed fairly late, but Getty Lee was doing a book signing in New Jersey. He's only done, to my knowledge, two signings for his book on bass guitar, one in Toronto, one in New Jersey. Both have happened already. And the book just came out like a week before Christmas. And Getty Lee, they were going round and round about when he would come in and and when we could do this. And finally, it all worked out. I didn't get the amount of time I would have liked with Getty. I mean, I would have loved a solid hour or two hours. And uh, I was, you know, got to be honest with you, I was kind of tweaked because the interview came through me and I worked to get the interview. And then of course the minute he got into Sirius XM got pulled in five other directions and I'm sitting there waiting for him to get to me with an interview. I very much orchestrated and I'm getting my time cut. I get being a team player, but I I was not all too happy about that if I'm being honest, but I did get, I, I guess about a solid 30 minutes with Getty. And I hope, that we can do something more substantial. I've yet to see the book, but I hope to be getting that soon. And I hope that once I do, we can do something more substantial because we really just sort of scratched the surface on bass guitar players. And it was cool because he mentioned Bob Daisley and he mentioned Pete Way. And you'll hear we get some great stories from these guys. And then, of course, talk a little bit about Rush. Now, along those lines... The interview you're about to hear made huge news around the world for a couple of days after it aired. And that news was generated because I asked Getty about the 
future of Rush. And he volunteered that, as you'll hear in the interview, that Neil Peart, the line was, Neil is not only retired from Rush, he's retired from the drums. When you hear this interview and Getty Lee say that, I don't really do much follow-up on that. I let him speak and kind of move on. And the reason why is because it didn't phase me at all as being a big deal. I was kind of surprised how few people apparently knew that. And the reason why I didn't at that moment be like, whoa, I just got some great news, you know, some big news and whoa, we got to get into this is because my assumption was just everybody knew that. I had been hearing for a couple of years that Neil doesn't even have drums in his house. That once the final rush show happened, he was done, done, done playing, being around drums, anything. So I had been hearing that for years. And if you watch the rush documentary time stands still without saying it, they it's over. You know, they didn't, we talk about this a little bit. They didn't play the farewell card. They're not going to do that. And they just kind of quietly drifted away. But the news that it made when Getty Lee says that about Neil was shocking to me because I just figured everybody knew it. I just figured, I mean, yeah, of course, everyone knows that Rush ended because Neil was done. And it had been widely reported. He doesn't even play drums anymore. And I didn't see that as a huge revelation, but everyone else did. I'm telling you, this thing, it went all over the place, all over the world, that line. And I wish that I, and maybe it's bad on me, but I wish that I would have acknowledged that that was such a big deal because I would have embellished on it, I guess, a little bit more. But that was the huge takeaway from this interview. And a lot of other, other really interesting things in the interview sort of got overshadowed because of it. So you'll be able to listen to that if you didn't hear it. And if you'll be able to hear firsthand now what you no doubt read about if you follow any of the rock online outlets. And uh, look, I've said many times to me, Rush always does things in a classy way. And they ended, in my opinion, as much as it sucked to see him end, they ended as best as any band could end. Sounding good, intact, real, live, playing their entire catalog, incredible production, ending as friends, taking a bow, and that's it. Now, what Getty and or Alex do now is anyone's guess. Getty, as you're about to hear, put a ton of work into this book and it took a lot of time and travel for him to do that. And now... He is uh, starting to think about what he's going to do with music. Alex has been doing a few things as well. So maybe in this new year of 2019, it'll be the year that we see some sort of music to come from Getty and or Alex and the potential of them doing it together, which is also, you know, something. This was the first time I had a chance to talk to Getty about another a massive rumor that I started indirectly about a year or so ago when I mentioned there should be a Lee Lifeson band, and that went crazy on the internet. So I touch on that in the interview as well. But look, Getty's one of the, you know, these the guys in Rush are just such such great guys, beyond, of course, being brilliant players and a brilliant band. And I was glad, because Getty didn't do a lot when he did some press for this book, I was glad that I finally got a chance to talk to him and have him on for the interview you're about to hear. I thank Andy Curran, for his work helping me pull this off, as well as Meg Simsick. And, uh, yeah, Getty Lee, folks. Brand new interview from just a couple weeks ago about his book. And the last thing is, I hope that I can do another more in-depth interview with Getty once I get to really get into the book and see the book. 
And I'm hoping, you know, with the new year coming up, Getty is talking about going out and maybe doing some more signings and stuff. And if he does that, maybe there's a chance I can do a bigger, more extensive interview, both about the book and Rush in general. Or maybe that'll just wait until he does have a musical project to talk about. But either way, I hope you enjoy this. And uh, we'll get to it in just a second on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. What a way to kick off a new year than with Getty Lee of Rush. That is next. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Whether you love the action in sports from college football, bowl games, NBA, and NFL, and more, or you love movies and TV with the Oscars and Golden Globe Awards, betonline.ag has something for all types of interest. Sign up today for a free account, betonline.ag, and use the promo code PODCAST1 to receive a 50% sign-up bonus. Yes, a 50% sign-up bonus. Also, take advantage of their Refer a Friend program, where you can give a 200% bonus to your friend up to $200. Go online or use your mobile phone to sign up today and try in-game live betting, where you can participate with all the action every single play. Use the promo code PODCAST1 for a 50% sign-up bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. From all your friends at Podcast One, thank you for a wonderful 2018, and we hope 2019 is even better. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. This is Heather Dubrow from Heather Dubrow's World. Hey, it's Steve Offs from the Steve Offs Show. Hey, this is Rob Riggle. And Sarah Tiana from Riggle's Picks. This is Caitlin Bristow from Off the Vine. Hey, this is Kelsey from The Lady Gang. Happy New Year from Podcast One. Hey, if you like my show, you're going to love the Adam Carolla Show on Podcast One. One of the most downloaded podcasts of 2018 is starting yet another year of success with the ace man at the helm, and you don't want to miss what he's got to gripe about. Check out the Adam Carolla Show every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, let's get to it, folks. It's Eddie Trunk, and in this new year, first podcast of 2019, as I mentioned, couldn't think of a better guest to kick it off with than Getty Lee of Rush. This interview from my XM show on Volume Channel 106, hear it live every day, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, replay every night, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern, or anytime you want, on demand on the XM app. Here it is, Getty Lee. Got a little bit of cold. Uh, I do. Uh, pardon my uh, Deborah Winger voice today. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, you're not playing Madison Square Garden. Yeah, tonight. exactly. I don't have the nightmare of worrying about the gig tonight. But you are going to have to talk to hundreds of fans, I'm sure, tonight in New Jersey. Who yeah, are gonna... my my right hand is uh, going to be highly dysfunctional by uh, eight o'clock this evening. I think. Bookends in Ridgewood. Now, I'm assuming you put a cap on this thing, or there's yeah, so yeah. people can't listening. If you don't, if you're not signed up, don't no, come. It, no, it's sold out now. There's a uh, we capped it at a thousand books, and a th- so you have to sign a thousand books tonight. Yes, I do. Oh my gosh! Yeah, Getty Lee's big, beautiful book of bass. Yep. Out today? Out today. And you're signing a thousand? <laughs> yes. And I signed five hundred yesterday in Toronto. Is is so, uh, um my, you know, my writing had, my name used to say Getty Lee when I signed it now it says Gula <laughs> or just do a GL or something like yeah. that in all the uh, in all the years of signing albums and doing in stores and stuff like that what was the biggest one you ever did I mean I imagine like a thousand's got to be like no, a I've cap ne- yeah I've never done anything this big and we didn't do many in stores as Rush I don't think we we did any uh, when I did my solo album in uh, 2000 I did a few in stores and they were kind of hairy yeah uh, but uh, this is my this is a new world now I'm not in a touring band at the moment so uh, I'm an quote author 
I have to get used to this stuff. So what you're saying is you're out of work and you have to carve out a new career here. <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> Figure out, so you got to get out and press yeah, the flesh yeah, a little right. bit. I got no day job to blame it on. <laughs> Are you doing other signings besides tonight? Is there other stuff lined up? You did Toronto the other day? Yeah, uh, we have some things we're talking about doing uh, uh, later in the, the month. And uh, then, of course, I've got family holidays. And then when I come back, I hope to do some more in the spring. Well, let's talk about the book. You have been working on this for a long time, right? When did the idea first come to you to do a book about bass, which, of course, you play and is your your big love? Well, I I started thinking about this about three years ago uh, after I was deep into collecting these vintage instruments. And uh, and I started to realize that uh, between my tech, Scully, and I, uh, talking to a lot of the players uh, that I was buying the basses from, or the dealers that had fantastic stories that associated some of these instruments, and also the history of some of these smaller companies and, and even the bigger companies uh, became more and more fascinating to me. I thought, well, you know, there really isn't a bass book out there that has the kind of appeal that a lot of the uh, guitar books have, the vintage guitar books. There's some beautiful, uh, well-photographed guitar uh, compendiums out there but I felt like my instrument was getting the short shrift. So I started thinking at that time that maybe we should uh, you know, do some justice to my, my main instrument. Did you always collect bass guitars, or did you only start to really get into it around research for this book? Uh, yeah, I didn't collect instruments. I, I collect almost everything else, but <laughs> I didn't collect instruments for the most of my career because the instruments I, I bought uh, and used were focused on instruments that would deliver what I needed sound-wise and help me to form my own musical identity. So uh, the idea of collecting them just didn't enter my mind. But then uh, I guess it was about eight years ago that somebody offered me a swap for some instrument I had in exchange for uh, a bass, uh, a Fender Precision bass for my birth year in 1953. Now you know how old I am. Uh, and, <laughs> was that a closely guarded <laughs> secret, Kenny? I know. <laughs> Nothing is anymore. <laughs> but one doesn't like to to speak the name. When one gets to be a certain age, doesn't like trust to me. I'm the, not far from you. Say pal. the number out loud. But uh, anyway, uh, at that point, I, I so I held this 53p base in my hands, and I went, God, you know, it's embarrassing how little I know about the origins of the instrument that I've held in my hands for over 40 years. Yeah. So I started doing some research, and then I got hooked. And when you think about when people watch videos or see photos of you throughout the history of Rush, a lot of people immediately, I think, think of the Rickenbacker because that was just such a, a iconic period yeah. of Rush and, and you and your playing. But I think after that, you know, I remember seeing the videos. I think it was like maybe for Distant Early Warning or whatever. And then suddenly you're playing, I guess, I'm not a musician. I don't play anything. But I think it's a Steinberger, the one with the right. little little thing. and like The headless one. The headless one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so throughout your history in the band, you were you were not, a, even though a lot of people may immediately say Getty Lee Rickenbacker, they really look at it. You, you, you messed around a lot over the decades, I guess, in an effort mm-hmm. to fit whatever sound you were going for at that time, right? Exactly right. My, my first good bass that I ever bought was a 1968 Fender Precision bass, and that's what got me through the bar days, and it was like a war horse. Uh, and uh, that's the one that I eventually cut down in the shape of a teardrop and painted it like a dune buggy. Uh, which in many respects destroyed it. But uh, but uh, that was my first bass was Fender. But when I got my first uh, advance on the very first record royalty uh, record company contract that I signed, the first thing I did was go down to my local music shop in Toronto and buy a Rickenbacker. I had dreamed of playing one. Chris Squire played one, and he was my hero back then. Uh, so that became my love began my love affair with Ricky's, and I used them right up until the the middle eighties, I think, early, uh, middle eighties. Yeah. Of the bass, I haven't seen the actual book, but of the bass guitars featured in the book, are they all yours, or are they just uh, basses you wanted to talk about? In other words, do you own everything that's in the book? Is it your personal yeah. collection? Yeah, um, it is. Sad to say, they're all mine. How yeah. many? There's two hundred and fifty in the book. Um, and how many do you own total? Uh, bases, I own about 260. I've acquired a few since the cutoff. I was going to say there's 10 that didn't make the cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and plus I collect uh, electric guitars too. So I have about another 80 of those that hanging around the house. So. What is the most 
rare collectible base in your collection, the, the one worth the most money? Um, well, uh, it's hard to say in terms of, of, of value, but I have a couple of bases that were made by Tony Zamatis. Uh, Tony Zamatis was a master builder who started making guitars in the 70s for people like Keith Richards and Eric Clapton and Ronnie Wood and famously Ronnie Lane. Uh, and his bases, because they're custom made and they're so rare, uh, uh, he made... He made less basses than guitars, so the basses themselves, are, they command quite a cost. But uh, that's, again, up to the, the taste of the collector. But I also have this uh, uh, amazing oddity, which is a 4005 Rickenbacker. It's, it's a Rickenbacker 4005L. The L stands for light show mm. bass. Uh, and that is, it's an oddity because it's full of, lights that light up as you play the really? bass in a different way <laughs> yeah not the most practical thing to take up on your uh uh, uh on stage but uh the fact that they only made at, we think they only made 5 of them and uh, I know John Entwistle had one at one point but it's disappeared and only 3 are known to still exist uh on the planet so it's pretty rare but there are also some rare Fender jazz basses and precision basses from the early days that I have in the book. And and uh, there's a whole range of, of just, uh, you know, weird, what I call weird in the sense that there's some basses that were being made in Italy, for example, or in Sweden that people weren't readily aware of over here. And they were making these in the late 50s, early 60s that are, are really sort of pieces of mid-century art in a way. So, And they photographed so beautifully mm. that once we started down that road, it became apparent that this has to be a big illustrated uh, book and with the emphasis on photography. And to edify as well, we put, you know, sort of... Uh, small bits of history and nerdy facts for the <laughs> guitar freaks. Right. Is there a Getty Lee holy grail of bass guitars out there, like the one you're searching for, the one that you just can't find anywhere that you want so bad that you're like online or on eBay or just the, the, the word is out, I got to find somebody that has this one? Is there one? There are a few of those. There, one of them that I've been looking for unsuccessfully, which is a bit of a surprise because it's not that old. It's a 1968 Fender Telecaster bass that is what they call a blue floral. Now I'm sure someone out there has one that's listening to my. I was voice. going to say this is a this is broadcast yeah. live to America and Canada. I got a lot of friends who are guitar yeah. geeks listening. Contact Eddie Trunk, my agent. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll only take ten percent. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's one that eluded me. Uh, I have. They made two it, to celebrate the Summer of Love in '68. Fender reissued basically the body style of their first bass, but they covered one in literally pink paisley wallpaper and the other in blue floral wallpaper. And wow. I, I have a couple of the paisleys, but I can't find the blue floral anywhere. But also there are anything from, especially Fender from the years 1951 through 1964 in custom colors, they're hard to find in, in great condition and and same with uh, Thunderbirds, which is a bass I never played uh, during my career and discovered, you know, sort of later in life. Mm. Uh, I remember playing with guys like uh, Pete Way of UFO. I was just going to say, I'm a huge UFO fan, yeah, and I know yeah. you toured with them. And yeah. Pete, I always considered Pete to be like the Keith Richards of bass, you know, stumbling around and falling down. You know, well, yeah. always that big firebird down was, by his knees yeah, and yeah. pointing it out, the headstock out to the crowd. And so I was never a fan of Thunderbirds back then. And I remember going up to Pete and saying, Pete, why do you like this bass? And he's, you know, he said to me, well, Glee. Call me Glee. <laughs> uh, you know, I find my bass is three quarters good and one quarter not very nice. <laughs> so uh, that story has stayed with me. So I think he'll be pleased uh, to see that I've sort of come full circle with that bass and now I embrace them. I got to jump in real quick because there's a, I've heard there's so many funny stories, but I heard a story. I don't know if the guys in UFO told me or you or Alex told me once that when you were playing with one time you guys had so much dry ice about three feet up in on the stage that they came out while you were playing and like pulled that alex or yours 
ankles or something like they were hidden under the yeah they would do that and, and another thing they did uh is uh they would always make fun of us because we were wear- wearing at that time that was our robe phase right where we would wear these kabotos on stage which yeah. uh which we would refer to as the absurdly prophetic robes <laughs> and i remember one time walking out on stage and when the dry ice settled there were two furry slippers nailed to beside my uh, mic stand that they had <laughs> sort of snuck out and nailed to the, into the stage floor those guys in ufo would be like <laughs> under the dry ice while rush were playing like drinking and messing with them that's that is just classic uh classic stuff let me ask you you mentioned a second ago i mean you talked to some bass players besides of course showing your collection throughout the book and you interview some people in the book um you mentioned chris squire and what an influence he was on you Mm -hmm. you of course had the chance to play if the rock and roll hall of fame didn't don't even get me started but ignore yes for so long chris squire should have been there of course but they went in way too late after the fact, and Chris wasn't. So you had the opportunity to play yes. in Yes yeah. and and fill that. What did that mean to you? What was that experience like for you? Um, it was uh, surreal uh, when I got the call and, and they asked me if I would uh, you know, do that, sit in, especially on Roundabout, which is one of the great Chris Squire songs of all time, one of the great Yes songs of all time. And so I was, I was totally honored to do that. And, uh, you know, I practiced really hard so that I wouldn't <laughs> let him down. I wanted to, to do well. And it was really a request from his wife, I think, is is where it originated. Because uh, Chris, I guess, had spoken well of me in the past. So um, <clears throat> the, uh, on the day, it was just uh, a tremendous thrill. First, to, to induct them, right. you know, which I know what that feels like. and uh, And there's no one... Who, in my view, was no band that was more deserving or overlooked than Yes were at that time. Yeah, uh, especially their body of work. But then to 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 induct them and then to go backstage and then join them for that classic song is really one of the highlights of my career. It was terrific. Who are some of the people that you got to talk to that maybe you hadn't talked to ever before about bass for the book? There, I imagine you had a, a, a big hit list. I know you had John Paul Jones that mm-hmm. you had a chance to be a part of the book. Who were who some of the people that maybe you didn't even know that well, but you got to connect with through this book? Well, it was really interesting because I didn't have a, a, a lot of space you know, because the book was already way oversized. But, uh, and so I had to choose my uh, interviewees carefully. Uh, One of the criteria was they had to connect with the book, either be connected to the period that I'm talking about in the book or have been a huge influence on me or been around in the period or be collectors themselves. So uh, talking to Bill Wyman was a huge thrill and, Mm. and really important to me because the first bass part I ever learned to join a band was 2120 South Michigan Avenue. Plus, he invented essentially the electric uh, fretless bass. And, you know, he's sort of seen it all. And he played so many different brands that are also in the book. So he was a perfect fit. And he was really fun to talk to. John Paul Jones was obvious to me. He plays a 62 jazz bass. That's my favorite year of jazz basses. Uh, Adam Clayton was a huge surprise to me. Uh, A total gentleman, great bass player, and also a collector. So it was fun to compare notes with him. I think we're getting ready to do a swap. Uh, a deal's in the works. <laughs> um, and Bob Let me Daisley. know if you need me to broker that yeah, for okay, you. I'll jump in and get it. <laughs> uh, Bob Daisley was great fun. I actually, I went just for 24 hours to Sydney to his house. Really? I just talked to Bob a few days ago. Oh, yeah. yeah, he, yeah. He's awesome. Yeah, he's that's a, awesome. And people yeah. don't know... I was just saying this before you came in, ironically enough. I mean, Bob played bass on every Ozzy solo recording yeah. from the first record through No More Tears, except for one album. But, I mean, an enormous part that of that story that is, in a way, sadly overlooked, you know? Yeah. No, he doesn't get the acclaim he deserves. No. He's a great bass player. Yeah. And he had, he was one of the first real collectors of basses, too. So he has a fine collection that people used to always refer to. So I bought a couple of basses from him over the years. And, and you know, I was talking to him about doing an interview. He said, yeah, well, we can do it on the phone or something. I said, screw it. I have to go see you. So I got on a plane. Wow, you flew to Australia. Yeah, I went. <laughs> I no wonder why Sydney. you got a cold, Gary. Yeah, yeah. You're running around the, the world to do a five-minute interview. <laughs> uh, we had the best time. I'm you know? sure. Yeah. I, I went to him 
to see him with a, with my photographer to his house and him and his wife made us sandwiches and we hung out and he was one of the few guys that played music constantly while I was there. He was as interested in the, in the book as I was, but he was also interested in playing me songs from his favorite bass players. So I love people that take that to heart. They're yeah. passionate about it. So he was he was a great guy to talk to as well. But. Yeah, you you know. And I always wondered this, and I I only had a chance to look at some of the PDF stuff on the book, Mm -hmm. but people wonder, like, younger people listening, and how can I sound like Geddy Lee, or how can I sound like whatever bass player they're a fan of? How much of it comes from the actual makeup of the instrument, the strings, the pickup, the body of it, versus there are guitar players that have told me this. Yeah, people try to want to sound like this, but there's also something that just inherently comes from that person's fingertips. That's right. That that that's that it is, you know, there are some things you can do from a technical standpoint, but at the end of the day, that's what makes that person sound like that because of how they attack the instrument. Is that is that accurate? I, I, you said it. I mean, you described it perfectly. That's exactly what it is. It's like a fingerprint, you know. Your personality is what comes through. You can get close. You can get a ba- you can pick up, you know, Jocko's Base of Doom, Jocko Pastorius's mm-hmm. Base of Doom, and you can do a slide and you might sound like Jocko for 10 seconds, but you can't sound like Jocko because only Jocko is Jocko, right? I mean, that sound comes from his experience, his soul. And what I, t- what I say to young players is, sure, imitate your heroes. That's fine. Try to go for the sound that Chris Squire had or Jack Bruce had. Along the way, you're going to realize that it's not going to sound exactly like that. And you might discover some confidence in yourself and, and bringing all those things together is what makes your identity. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, Billy Sheehan, who's a friend, gave me a bass a few years ago. Gave me a Yamaha bass and signed it to me, and it's on my wall. And uh, he didn't know I couldn't play anything. Oh, yeah. And he handed it to me, and, he said, and it's a beautiful, it's one of his signature instruments. Yeah. And I, I said, he goes, oh, you got to just mess around with it. You'll figure it out. I go, yeah, but Billy, I want to know how to play like you, like now. You know, <laughs> And that's the challenge. You get these things, you're like, damn, I want to dig into this, but I just don't have the time or the discipline to learn what I'm doing, but it looks beautiful on my wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, know? no. And Billy's an amazing player, like dexterity, like nobody's business. Well, he, he did something with the bass like that. I don't know. Like he took it in a whole different place almost. Mm-hmm. He made it like a lead instrument in some instances. Like yeah, exactly. I don't really know a lot of people that, uh, you know, that, that, that played like that. Did you see the doc that... Uh, Robert Trujillo did on Jocko? Absolutely, I did, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know much about Jocko's story, but that documentary is really, really good for people who haven't seen it. Yeah, I was interviewed for that film, and uh, I talked to to Robert, and Robert's in the book, Mm -hmm. and he talks about that whole period and how, you know, everything that was involved in in bringing that bass back to the family, which, I mean, he's he's an angel for doing that. Yeah. He's, he's an amazing guy. Yeah, I forgot you're in it. It's been a little while since I saw it. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But, uh, no, it, it's a great story, and and, and Robert really, uh, he'll go to heaven for that. Yeah. We'll be right back with more with Getty Lee on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. This, this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Every car comes with its uh, share of stories. You know that, right? That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date. The luxury package you got after that big promotion. Or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car's worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to True Car, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof, watch as they bump up your value. High mileage, You already knew it was going to cost you, right? But now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True Car cash offer not available in all areas. 
Podcast One would like to congratulate Heather and Terry Dubrow of the Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig podcast for the success of their latest book, The Dubrow Diet. Very exciting. Which was named one of the Internet's most talked about diets of 2018. I mean, I just feel like, not, excuse my language, but not bad. Good luck to your New Year's resolutions and get your health on with Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig every Tuesday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Let's get back to more with Getty Lee on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. I know we have limited time, so I want to talk to you about a few other things before you have to go. But let's remind everybody again, the book is out now. It's called Getty Lee's Big Beautiful Book of Bass. And you can buy it wherever you get books. It is a a large coffee table sort of book, right? You put a lot into the... Yeah, it's heavy. It's uh, 20 by... It's the size of an album cover, but it weighs a hell of a lot more. It's 408 pages, uh, over 200 instruments featured. Uh, It's... Don't drop it on your foot. That's what I say. <laughs> Something tells me there's a sequel coming maybe in a few years too. You already got Possible. ten in the book. You already got ten in the can. Yeah, yeah it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and the ones you're looking for, if somebody responds, you got those to do. So I hope my wife isn't listening to this. <laughs> um, let me ask you, I, I can't let you get out of here without asking you about playing music. Now sure. that you've done this book, um, the, the world I think has come to grips, even though reluctantly, with the fact that Rush is pretty much Mm-hmm. In the books, w- right. would that still be? Would that be accurate to say that's still the case? Yeah, I mean, Neil is retired. Uh, he hasn't just retired from Rush; he's retired from drumming. He's, yeah, he's not drumming anymore, and and he's living his life, which is fine. You know, Alex and I are cool with it. We're all still total pals. In fact, Alex and I were there just a few weeks ago visiting him, and we stay in touch. And of course, Alex lives very near to me, so we're constantly going out to dinner because he loves to drink everything in my wine cellar uh and he wrote uh, the afterwards in the book yeah i call it the backward the backward yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah uh yeah he we're still pals and, and uh, we're all we all talk but you know that period of our life is done uh is there more music to come from myself and from alex most certainly i don't know when or what shape that will take you know i don't know if alex and i will do something together but well you know i gotta jump in there a second and apologize to you while you're here because i i'm sure you heard about this this show and me and my audience inadvertently started Mm -hmm. about a year ago a rumor that went crazy around the world that's why my inbox exploded the lee lifeson band that (laughs) we came up with and that happened getty the god's honest truth about that and i was on the phone with your management and apologizing because you know how the internet can be sure we were just i was taking questions from my audience and all just openly as we do as fans speculating about what may come of our favorite bands yeah and a call it was a caller i never forget i was in houston and he said what about if getty and alex did something together called it lee lifeson and i said well that would be pretty cool if that was to be the Mm. case if they wanted to do it and i i had just seen you guys on the r40 tour i was at the show in denver we were talking after the show in the dressing room and you had said that how great you were feeling and i said how great your voice sounded and he said yeah i'm really i'm ready to go i want to do some stuff so we just said yeah and then it went on to another thing and then the next day the beauty of the internet yeah yeah (laughs) eddie trunk says and i was like oh my god this is so Apologies no worries, for that. But no worries. No worries. It, it no harm done. It's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as people love, people keep asking me and they want me to be definitive, and I can't be because I really haven't thought that far. Yeah. You know, I've been working on this book for just over two years now, and uh, it's been great fun. It's been a passion project for me. And it's been very good for my head, and in a way, it was really a good break from everything that was going down with Rush and from the end of that tour, and it threw me into another obsession, which was uh, educational uh, in terms of learning about my instrument, but also in terms of learning about uh, making a book and what's involved, you know. Uh, so I enjoyed that. Now I will start thinking about what I'm going to do next, and and I'll start playing all those beauties that are staring me when mm. I go into the staring at me when I go into my studio. So whether it be potentially another solo record or something with Alex, you just haven't really thought about it yet. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't gotten that far yet. Yeah. Um, 
Rush reissues have mm-hmm. been coming out, these 40th anniversaries. Hemisphere's just done recently. This whole process for you, um, how's it been to revisit these records? Um, you know, it's hard for me. Uh, I, you know, I leave that really to the record company and the management people to deal with. I don't really have much to do with it. You know, of course they, they, they need us to say, yeah, okay, uh, show us what they want to do. And sometimes we have an opinion or two that, that is different from theirs. And Alex, you know, oversees the Sonic stuff, you know, but, uh, I'm really not interested in looking back on that stuff too much. You know, I'm more interested in what I'm doing now and getting and and what I have to come in my life. So uh, we'll see. But uh, and more power to the fans if, and thank them for supporting those uh, those records. And and it's nice to see the new artwork and, yeah. and they dig out a few old buried uh, fossils every once in a while. So, but uh, yeah, that's that's too backward looking for me. Yeah, you're always on to the next thing. You're yeah. always thinking about the yeah. next. So are you at peace? Are you comfortable and you are at peace with the way Rush ended? I mean, I've said this many times, and I'm not saying this. I've said this a million times without you sitting here. I don't think a band could have ended any better mm. than the way you guys put a button on your career. Having seen that show and the way you chronologically went backwards and represented all the eras, and you didn't come out and play the farewell card to the extreme where you just, but you kind of gave a little nod saying, hey, this is probably kind of it. I mean, the way you did it was the way, to me, the band's whole career has been done with respect to the fans and so classy, and you ended strong. I'm a big believer, no matter how much I love a band, don't stay too long at the party, know when to get out before you start saying, well, that guy used to be so good. Mm. Having seen that show, I mean, I, I thought it was actually better than some of the tours that preceded it in terms of the way no, the I, band sounded. So I would agree with that. Are you happy with the way the whole thing buttoned up? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a difficult, that last gig was a difficult night. Uh, but uh, what you're talking about is really what was going through Neil's mind. You know, he was struggling uh, throughout that tour to play at his peak because of physical ailments and and other things that were going on with him and and he is a perfectionist and he did not want to go out and do anything less than what people expected of him and that was that's what drew, drove him his whole career and that's the way he wanted to go out and I totally respect that and for Alex and I of course you know we're we're not drummers so we don't know and we don't take the same physical abuse although Alex does suffer from arthritis and he was having a very difficult time on that tour uh playing a 3 hour show yeah so it was clear that whatever happened in the future it was not going to be like that and and I spent a lot of time designing that that tour with all our great creative people and, and trying to make sure that it told that story in reverse and and it was great fun to do and I think my sadness was just the fact that I was so happy we pulled it off with the whole reverse chronological thing that I would like to have had the rest of the world that couldn't come to those cities experience that and that's really the only regret I have is that we couldn't do more shows but uh, in hindsight now and with the benefit of time uh, I'm very happy with the way it, it went down and and it just didn't sit right for me to do a farewell tour and try to capitalize on that word it just it just didn't it just didn't work for me and you I t- remember talking to you about this after the show that I was at we we were in in the dressing room we were having some food and you were saying to me I was mentioning to you I thought your voice on that tour was better than it had been in a while like your voice was spot on and you had said that you had made some adjustments t- uh, to your diet or something mm-hmm. to to yeah. help your voice uh, no dairy I remember you telling me the story but I mean really the band went out so strong and then of course the document the the, the documentary time stands still uh, such a great sort of you know button as well on the whole thing so i know that i speak for all the rush fans in that it's it it hurts when you see a band you love so much kind of end but man i'd rat i mean to me you guys created the blueprint for how to do it the right way at the right time well, that's that's really kind and, and I, I really appreciate you saying that uh you know it wasn't the easiest thing to pull off but uh i feel good about our our body of work you know and i feel good about the way it ended and you know, onward and upward. And last thing before I let you go, speaking of collecting, we talked about the bases and the book and all that sort of stuff. Um, seems like I always get to talk to you, you do, just around when we're starting to talk about baseball heating up and right. all that. <laughs> I, I, I think all the time about um, 
when your first solo record came out in 2000, you had called into my radio show, and one of my best friends, Mike Piazza, was sitting with me. Right. And at the time, he was playing for the Mets. And I'll never forget this because you had said to him, like, hey, Mike, I came down to spring training. And Mike said, why don't you come over and say hello? And you said, I can't. You're Mike Piazza. <laughs> and then Mike said, hey, Getty, but I saw you in the stands, too. And and you said, well, why didn't you come over and say hello? He goes, I can't. You're Getty Lee. You know, right. you guys had had this sort of standoff. Yeah. But you had reached out to me not too long ago because at that point you were talking about doing a documentary on Italian baseball. You wanted yeah, me to yeah. connect you with Mike at that yeah, time. That's right. Yeah. Did anything ever come of that? Uh, well, you know, uh, it's, it's it's kind of a bittersweet story, but I've been – I'm still working on this film project. It's, it's not a documentary, but it's based on uh, some real events. But – uh, it's and it is set in Italy about baseball in Italy. But uh, we had an actor lined up uh, to play the lead, and then there was this terrible accident he mm. was involved in, and he lost his life, and it was, it was really tragic. So the whole project sort of went to bed, and uh, understandably, and and now we're starting to rev it up again. I really hope to make the film. It's an independent film, low budget film, but it's uh, a really sweet story. And uh, so, Mike, I might be calling you. <laughs> well, he lives in Italy now. Oh, great. He moved there. So there's another, you can yeah. go drink some wine in Italy. Perfect. If you're going to Australia to talk to Bob Daisley, <laughs> I'm sure you'll go to Italy to talk uh, baseball with Mike. Yeah, so. Absolutely. Uh, and I imagine the last thing, I mean, it seems like the the upside of this, you know, rush being put to bed is you have these chances now at this point in your life mm -hmm. to do these other things, to do a book, pursue a movie. Are there any other ideas outside of potentially making a record or doing something musically again that you're working well, I'm on? I'm really interested in being around for my grandson. So that's, that's a big job for me. And, and I do a lot of traveling with my wife and that's, uh, that's really important to me now. You know, my family took a backseat to my entire career for 42 years. And I think I owe it to them now to switch the priorities, you know, and that's sort of the, the way I think now. And the traveling is different as opposed to you're not traveling to get to an arena and sound check. Yeah, exactly. You're traveling to get there and enjoy some food and drink and yeah, yeah. spend time with your family. You know, my wife and I are big hikers, so we travel the world uh, walking. And wow. It's a nice pace, and uh, it's a fabulous cultural experience, and we get to do it together, so it's really What's cool. What's the most amazing place you visited hiking? Uh, well, we love New Zealand. Uh, we've we've been there twice, and we're going back a third time. Uh, and I love I loved hiking around South Africa; it was really cool. And last year, we spent four weeks in uh, the Andes near Argentina. So uh, South America is always fun. So we are uh, we have the bug. Yeah, he's got to go. He's got to go. All right. One of these days, we'll we'll have time. We'll get into all kinds of stuff. When, okay, great. When, when we have some uh, extra time, feel better. I know you're fighting a cold. Everybody, be easy with Getty tonight in New Jersey <laughs> at bookends. You know, uh, f how many? A thousand books. Yeah, a thousand books. Oh, shake that wrist out, man. Yeah, yeah, good thing you don't have to play or anything. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. All right, Getty. Best of luck with the book. Again, the book is called Getty Lee's Big Beautiful Book of Bass. It is available now. Signing tonight, in New Jersey. Keep us posted when you have other signings. We'll get the word out for you. Thank you. Hopefully, we can do more on the book sometime in the new year enjoy the holidays uh say hi to the guys and it's it's great to see you thanks for coming thanks, by Eddie. great to see you well hope you guys enjoyed that i certainly did and as i was saying earlier i truly hope that i can do more with getty in this new year the only regret i have was time we didn't get as much time as i hoped or expected but you did get a good half hour and some good content in there and getty's uh, big book of uh, beautiful bass or Whatever the hell it's called exactly is available now. So check it out, especially if you are a big fan of bass guitar. Thanks to Katie Irizari, who is the producer of the Eddie Trunk podcast and who celebrated a birthday on Christmas Day. Belated happy birthday to Katie, at least here on the podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Follow me on Twitter at Eddie Trunk. There's also Instagram. There's a fan page on Facebook. EddieTrunk.com is the official online home. Once again, a very happy, healthy New Year to everybody. Hope you catch me on the radio on Sirius XM, and I'll catch you back here next Thursday for another all-new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, always free on PodcastOne.com or iTunes. Thank you for downloading, streaming, and subscribing. Have a good week, everybody.
Podcast One Sports is your home for the Underdog Sports Network. Join Chris Horwadell and friends each week as they cover the biggest stories in sports with shows like Tales from the Association, the Underdog Sports NFL Show, and you're wrong and here's why. You can't rely on draft picks a lot of times with quarterbacks. There's four to five quarterbacks drafted in the first round that are complete busts. Check out all these exciting shows on the Underdog Sports Network every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 